Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and this is episode 113. And my goal with this podcast, as many of you know, but some of you might be newer and have just joined this podcast, is to bring out the best athlete version in all of you. And with that, because that is a component in your overall day, and because we can actually focus on that area of our life, that component of our life, it will seep into having an impact on the overall best version of ourselves every day. And (laughs) I apologize for the construction in the background, if you can hear that. But yes, and so the athlete version of ourselves that piece of ourselves that we're applying ourselves to every day has an impact on the overall version because it's a small piece that we can wrap our arms around, wrap our mind around in order to do the best we can possibly do with that component. And when we're seeing, when we're feeling, when we're observing, when we're internalizing that we're doing that component well, we're actually able to build that into bigger pieces of our overall day. Our family version, husband version, father version, wife, mother version of ourselves, our professional version, our work, career, um, leadership version of ourselves, all those different components that if we can wrap our arms around it and our mind around it and understand it and not control it, but have a good sense that we're doing our best and we're shining in that component, it will eventually All those puzzle pieces lead to the best overall version of ourselves. And that's what I talk about on the Weekly Word podcast. I also believe that through true ultra-endurance training and events, we tap into something deeper in ourselves. That the training and daily immersion allows for our best athletic version to come forward, to display itself. It may even shine. This frequent connection into ourselves, into our soul, the process of going inwards, allows for a stillness and reflection to take place. Endurance training can nourish that soul, allows us to be present, alive, to be the authors of our lives versus just readers. When we become authors, we live life in the truth of who we truly are, what we believe in, the best current version of ourselves. We thrive, not just survive. And so in order to bring forth that ultra-endurance version of ourselves, we need to understand fueling, hydration, training, mindset, um, navigating how to go about this best, um, strategy, um, training approach, training methodology, training physiology, training psychology, all this to prepare us for that best possible future outcome and that best possible future version of ourselves. And that's everything we discuss here on the podcast. It goes into a variety of different topics from zone two training to hydration to strength training to all kinds of events my athletes are doing. That is all part of the overall picture helping you to train in order to prepare for events and tap into something deeper in ourselves. And that's the opportunity I also had last weekend in doing the 29029 event and that many of you might have seen via me or Rich or uh, Colin or Billy on social media. 
So what is 29029? Well, for those of you that aren't familiar with it, it's a a mountain climbing event. (laughs) I know I ran out of the words there. Um, You ascend a mountain, basically up a mountain, up a ski slope in order to gain the altitude of Everest, the equivalent of climbing Everest, which is 29,029 feet. And so in this event, the organizers have chosen a mountain that is quite steep and you go straight up it. And in this case, in Utah, it was 13 times up the mountain from the lodge at the bottom to the lodge at the top, which was about two and a half miles and um, about 2,300 feet of climbing. And you do that 13 times in order to reach that ascension of 29,029 feet. You take the gondola down. And in that time, you have a chance to recover, eat, fuel, and so forth. Now, it sounds a lot easier than it truly is, and it is a long event. And that's another great aspect of 29029, is that it is a truly an ultra-endurance event. It is, for the fastest, a 17- to 18-hour event, and for the cutoff is 36 hours. Um, But you are out there, even at a good clip, for 23, 24 hours. An ascent takes anywhere from an hour realistically, to an hour and a half to two hours, depends on your abilities and your pace and your training. But even if you're doing something for, and each ascent takes an hour, the gondola down is another 20 minutes and you got to fuel and um, do things in between, use restroom and stuff, such. That already I just mentioned is at least 15, 16, 17 hours. So it is almost impossible to do this event in less time than an Ironman. So if an Ironman is an ultra endurance event, this is a great way to tap into something similar. It's in a controlled environment. There's two aid stations along the ascent. Of course, there's one at the bottom and one at the top. There's a similar, it's not a similar, it's the same course each time. So you're always out there with people, people cheering you on from the gondola, people, um, hiking through you as you're going up so that they're cheering you on in a very controlled, safe, supportive environment. You are tapping into an ultra endurance event. It's a great way for many of those who are curious of what an endurance and an ultra endurance event could mean, how they would feel, how challenging it would be, how it is going through the night, um, because you do go through the night nonstop because you run out of time otherwise. Now, some of the faster folks can definitely finish at say one in the morning and get a few hours of sleep, but then, I mean, you got to pay attention. You got to get right back on it. I, for example, did 10 ascents Then I went to sleep for only six hours, and then I had to get right back on it in order to finish my remaining three or four ascents. So um, there's no dilly-dallying, and you're in constant motion for basically 30 hours, 36 hours, depends on how you go about it. And the support and the community and the, um, the fun, the joy that everybody experiences, whether they do 13, whether they do nine, whether they do five, each ascent gets you closer to different peaks around the world, such as Denali, such as Kilimanjaro, such as um, Aconcagua. Um, So you have an opportunity to achieve these 
peaks and summits and understand what a great endurance accomplishment this is. And it's put on by um, a, a bunch of great guys, including Colin and Jesse Itzler, Colin O'Brady and Jesse Itzler, and organized by um, a friend of mine named Mark. But what is why I bring them up is because they talk afterwards about how, you know, even if you didn't reach all summits, because it is surprisingly hard to reach all summits. And so you'll come back next time. And almost all the returnees from last year um, absolutely either doubled or tripled their distance this year, in most cases, finishing all 13 ascents. And the 13th ascent, you get the red bib, and it's a celebration, and everybody's cheering for you. It is powerful. Only 250 people can do this, are invited or not invited, have a slot. Um, it fills at 250. But the reason I say brought up those guys is because then they'll talk about how in your plane, when you're flying home and that ding comes on, that you're allowed to now get out your laptops or um, use your seat recliner, that's 10,000 feet. So then you have an understanding of how far you climbed up and you look out the window and you realize, man, I climbed straight uphill and it is straight uphill. It's no joke. This was the Olympic downhill course in um, the Salt Lake City Olympics. So it's it's not like just meandering, easy grade course. It is the downhill steepest part of Snow Basin Mountain. And the other one is in Vermont in a couple of weeks at Stratton. So um, solid climbs, solid work, solid leg work, solid hiking, solid out of breath, solid at altitude, remember. Um, so again, nothing but positive to, things to say about the event. And, you know, this is my second year being involved with them. They brought me along as a coach and I love it. I love being able to support so many people out there, get to meet different people. And I've been doing this all my life and just spending time if it is all weekend with just one person and having an impact on helping them achieve things that they didn't think is possible, it ties into everything I believe in and the mission statement on my site, which is helping endurance athletes discover the best athletic version of themselves, right? And with that, to put them in a place where they are on the outer boundary of what they could imagine was possible. And that's what this is. That's what 29029 is for so many. Put them on the outer boundary of what they could imagine was possible and work with them to systematically, each ascent, break it down, pursue that desired outcome in a healthy and sustainable manner. How are they healthy and sustainable? They walk out of there with a tailwinds and excitement and joy to do more of this. And that's the beauty. And that's the fun. So... And then I had an opportunity to also speak at this event, which of course, um, I love public speaking. I love being able to practice it. And there were some, a little bit back and forth. I'm having to go after Colin O'Brady, who has a phenomenal talk that he did his TED talk. And he does a lot of public speaking engagements now that he's returned from Antarctica. So um, going after him, <laughs> I was sort of like, great. He sounds amazing, has this beautiful footage, amazing pictures and videos of him crossing Antarctica and being on Everest and all the seven summits in the world and the places and his story and just blown away. And then here I am um, to have a talk. But my talk was about journaling. And so um, 
I was um, assigned to work with 29029 on how to best journal and best practices and how to sort of work through that. And so what I thought would be fun today would be to give that talk here on the podcast um, so that you can hear uh, what I was talking about and how I apply journaling in the athletic world and how I've come about becoming sort of somebody that actually can talk about journaling. Like you'd think, what does an endurance coach have know anything about journaling? And that's sort of what I'll dive into. So I'll use that here as sort of the first thing we'll discuss this week on the podcast. But then also, I uh, this week had an opportunity to meet Sonny on Skype, and we talked for a while. And so I'll put that here in the podcast. Um, I will follow up on who got the wetsuit in Jersey. And I quite honestly just did it. Who did it and reached out first? It, it becomes too complicated with so many people um, saying, oh, that happens to be my size and it's exactly what I needed. I get it. And and everybody has a beautiful story on why. And so I just said, you know what? Um, the first person to reach out just had an opportunity to, to receive that wetsuit and that jersey and i'll have plenty more of this i have some great sponsors who've always been super generous and i also just in general want to be able to give away things that have helped me in the past and have a significant impact on my endurance journey so as usual i'll dive into a few emails with a variety of different um, um, questions and um, try to answer those as best as i can and then finally this week I will go into a topic that I talk about with regards to after races and how important it is to take that time off and what my strategy is with my athletes. So I hope you all enjoy this episode, this podcast. I recorded another consult, which was very helpful. It sort of was a pre-season, off-season, how to prep through the winter. Um, I will be releasing that after this podcast in a couple of days. So back at it here. I'm um, <clears throat> diving fully into the fall and the um, autumn months here as things get colder and uh, I have a variety of travel. And I have also started to embrace this thing called Instagram. Um, I uh, returned to it after six, seven, eight months of not using it. And um, I've made my account completely public because I didn't even realize I was all private and had to approve everybody. So then I saw all these follow requests and I was like, I, what do I have to keep hitting the button and approve? And so I figured that out <laughs> as my kids, my four children tell me like, come on, man, you are so OG. It's not even funny. But so if you have any ideas or thoughts or things I can contribute with regards to that world, I would love to hear from you. And then, uh, yeah, we'll keep uh, diving into all kinds of different topics and uh, hopefully answer some of those also with what's going on in the daily training life um, on Instagram. Also on a side note, I'm back to basically being almost 100%. Swimming is still the most difficult part. Um, flip turns, wow. Um, the compression of the lungs and then expanding them after some broken ribs was really <laughs> eye-opening how long this part's lasting. But the hiking at 29029 was not an issue. Um, 
never even felt it, um, only a little bit when I used poles on the final five or six ascents. And um, yeah, overall, just great weekend, great fun. I hope you all get a chance to sort of research it and look into it. I met some new athletes there that had just started with me and were at 29029 Utah. And I'm going to meet a new athlete in 29029 Vermont. So that'll be fun. And then also, if you have any interest and um, we want to catch up, I'm going to go do Rich's event at the end of the month. He's having a live podcast um, discussion panel um, at, a, at a big theater in LA and tickets are selling out quickly. Um, there's about a thousand available tickets. And I think last I saw or I spoke to him, he was at about 800. But we will be a variety of um, people there um, from a few of my sponsors will be there, as well as, of course, I will be there with Emily. And I was thinking on the night before the event of having a big um, sort of um, gathering. And um, if any of you are there or are, are local, I would love to meet any of you that listen to the podcast, you'll have a chance to meet um, the VP of Broca as well, and a few other people that are sort of going to be there with me the evening before at a dinner that we're organizing. So again, just would love to have an opportunity to meet many of you and make sure that the feedback I'm providing, the insights I'm trying to share here on the podcast are something that you see as valuable and that I'm not missing anything. Because as I said to Sonny in my conversation the other day, or maybe even on the podcast, after so many years of coaching and doing this um, endeavor of swim, bike, run, ultra running, ultra swimming, swimming, um, track, um, cycling, coast rides, another coast ride coming up in a few weeks, um, I might be missing some of the finer points that you might um, be interested in or might say, well, how do you even get to that point? Um, I might have jumped ahead too far. So that's where I would love to hear from you and continue to get your questions and feedback and insight. That's so very helpful. So enjoy this week. My conversation at 29029 as a presenter revolved around journals and why journals are important and how we can have some best journal practices. So as you'll hear from me here, it's going to be the full presentation as if you heard me on the stage. Hi, everybody. My name is Chris Hout, and I run a coaching business called AIMP Coaching. I'm an endurance coach, and for many athletes around the world, an ultra endurance coach. My work revolves around working with athletes that went pro in something other than the sport the discipline, the adventure that they are choosing to do. I work with athletes that have families and a busy career, so I'm focused on maximizing the limited training time they have while still achieving those endurance outcomes. You all might ask yourself, why is an endurance coach here to talk to us about journaling? In my 25 years of coaching, I noticed early on that getting athletes ready on the physical side was easy. Actually, many could get 80% there on web-based plans alone or researching a plan on the internet. 
But what truly makes an endurance athlete I work with successful is the mental component on what I call performance psychology. And that allows them to overcome the challenges mentally, not really physically, that they'll, that they'll face in their journey towards their endurance event. Most of us are busy with our families or our career. So getting 80% to our potential via training is the easy part, like I said. It's the mental component and sticking with it that will make the journey as well as the event so memorable. A key ingredient to this is journal journaling. We all already know the benefits of journaling. You see them everywhere. But let's talk about using the journal as a tool for determining how to achieve your future desired outcomes. First off, what is journaling? I define journaling as written meditation and a powerful one at that. Why? Thoughts are the vocabulary of the brain and feelings are the vocabulary of the body. Combine the two, how you think and how you feel, creates your state of being. This is what we are connecting when we're journaling. The word meditation means to become familiar with. So writing down your state of being connects the two in a physical act, writing, that embeds the entire process in a more powerful and meaningful way. Connecting the body and the mind via writing. In order to grow, we need our state of being, I call it, we need to, we need to know our state of being. I call it need to know where we are. Most of my clients already know where they want to be in the future. They already have an event or an expedition or an adventure in mind. But in order to effectively help them achieve their desired outcomes, we first need to determine who they are in the now, where they are starting from. Then, once we have a better understanding of this, we can work on the roadmap, the path towards who we want to be, those future outcomes. Journals can help us identify where we are and help curate that roadmap, a path to where we want to go. Journaling deeply influences our psychology. Why? For two reasons. Journals reflect and help shape our realities. They help us gauge and evaluate where we currently are. And secondly, journals enhance learning and development, therefore charting a path to where you want to go. I read about 1,200 to 1,500 journals a month, entries a month, excuse me, not journals. Those of my athletes. And in my work with them, athletes, executives, military operators, regarding mindset and their performance psychology, I've come to rely on these journals more and more in order to get a good feel of athlete progression. So by teaching them to journal better, I, in turn, can coach, guide, advocate for them better. I've therefore narrowed down 
effective journaling into those two components that I talked about as a way to reflect and help shape our realities and as a way to enhance learning and development. So the first one, a way to reflect and help shape our realities. How well you connect with yourself, with your mind, will determine how effective you are with the X's and O's, the prescription, the steps, your everyday actions and habits in achieving your future outcomes. In order to implement this strategy, you need to know, you need to connect with yourself and with your mind. This is why journaling is also so important. It allows you to go inward. Let me explain. What we write speaks volumes about who we are and our states of being. Our words impact how we perceive the world and how we feel in it. It's how we talk to ourselves, who we are in the now. Research finds that we express our personalities through language. I see this frequently with my athletes. Our resilience to stress and setbacks is revealed in the language they use. Resilient athletes use motion and action-related terms, such as done, doing, do, working, and make. These are words that are often used in the context of describing desired outcomes and intentions. The athletes struggling to reach their next breakthrough, next level in performance, fill their journals with emotional expressions. Their happiness over recognition and results, frustration over missing out on specific outcomes, or a lack of recognition, adoration, peer approval. The research goes even further. It finds that expressive, colorful writing can have a healing impact. Our language expresses our realities, but can also help to shape fresh realities. Our language is an important link between mind and body. Writing that focuses on depth of the emotional experience, how you are feeling, what you observe, connects us in a deeper way to those experiences since writing connects that wiring, similar to meditation. This is what I talk to so many of my athletes about their ability to write what they observed, how they felt, how it felt versus last week, right? How, um, um, how things could have gone differently, all that, not what they did. I wrote the workout. I don't need to know what they did. I need to know how it felt. Until I had a better understanding of this, my training logs were unhelpful. Despite them writing about the how, they would use expressive, colorful writing when things were not going well, when losing or struggling in training. Then they would fill their pages with descriptions of what went wrong. If journals not only express our realities, but also help shape them, you can see how such problem-focused, negative writing eventually helps solidify an internal sense of failure, connecting that wiring of failure, of negativity, and have having difficulty achieving a desired outcome. Alternatively, 
when I have directed athletes to keep their writing focused on solutions, describing not only what they did well, but how they did those things well, and how they could learn from their successes, the athletes were more likely to sustain journaling and more likely to find writing to be empowering and helpful. Journals make our self-talk concrete. There are ways of putting structure in the conversations we have in our head. Properly done, journals become psychological mirrors, showing us the version we currently are and giving us a glimpse of the version we are capable of becoming. We also talk about how journaling is an effective journaling is a way to enhance learning and development. My second point. Over the years, I've seen the journal practices of many successful athletes, but also of those struggling. What I found was that the journals of the least successful served reporting and venting functions. That is, about those workouts, events, and results. Venting. Conversely, the journals that the most successful athletes used or described or that I read served learning functions. Their entries were also about those workouts and events and results, but their journal entries specifically analyzed what had happened in the recent past, actually framing and framed goals going forward. It struck me that the most successful journals of those athletes or those athletes that were most successful, their journals, had actually become a way to ensure deliberate practice. Evaluating the training or phase that they're in, making corrective adaptations, and then reevaluating performance after those training bouts, efforts, results, experiences were complete. A roadmap of growth and towards the better version of you. Framing forward action. Successful athletes didn't just report in their journal, they analyzed. From this observation, I now apply the following journal format across a variety of athletes, those that are open to it and are actually effective journals, journalers, in a variety of performance situations. Again, with elite performers, with beginners on their first 10K, with special operators, with mountaineering athletes, um, executives, etc., there's a specific theme. We dive into two main questions in their journal. One, what one thing did I do best this week and how did I go about doing it? Or this, or yesterday, or this month. Define the time is not the importance. It can't be too big of a window, but identify one thing that I did best this week, for example, and how did I go about doing it? Also, the second question that goes with that, well, what is one thing I did this week where I failed or I could have done better? And what led me to fail? We all know that failing is not a negative when you can learn from it. So let's capture our failures. Journaling them is effective. Not all your failures, just one good fail this week. Now, athletes that get really into journaling take it one step further. They then go, what specifically will I do next week to continue doing, building upon what I did best? 
And they also do this conversely, specifically, what will I do next week to improve on the fail I had this week? Not avoid, but improve upon. And then there's also those that just love journaling and take it to a whole new level where they actually, how well did I achieve my build upon the goals from last week as I'm progressing forward, as well as how well did I achieve my improve upon fail from last week and continuously analyzing. All these are just deeper thought processes towards analyzing what's actually happening here. But the main two is identifying one thing I did best this week and how did I go about doing it, figuring out and analyzing what I do well and why. And what one thing did I do this week where I failed? And what led me to that fail? Right? And how do I not necessarily avoid it, but how do I implement procedures and processes and mental notes so that when that, op that situation comes up again, I quickly pivot, divert, whatever it is. Identify, learn, grow. Those questions combine learning from strengths and limiters with self-examination with actionable future outcomes. The effective journal not only captures what has happened, but connects it to the present and future versions of you by offering a clear and deliberate path, a roadmap. Here you all are this weekend at 29029, and you have signed up for this adventure, a challenging one at that. But what makes this weekend really unique is that we all arrive as the people we are, the human beings we are, the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual beings we currently are. And due to this adventure, this weekend, out on the other side comes a more valuable human being. Not just hopefully, it will. The challenges you will face and overcome, the perseverance you will show, will manifest itself into a better version of you. As your journal says, whether you realize it on Sunday returning home or not, Let's take advantage of this reason uh, this weekend for that purpose. To not only recognize the better version of ourselves, but to capture it in writing in that journal that you've been given by this event 29029. To identify some key drivers and inputs. Journaling allows us to be present, just being, to focus on who we are in the now. So much of our days and focuses on the potential version of ourselves, future goals, past lessons, and driving forward. But the best learning and self-awareness, as well as life experience, is in the here and now. Listening to the now, living in the present, is where the magic happens. The mountain this weekend allows for that. The mountain this weekend is for ideas and principles, for meditation and contemplation. It is a time to think in congruities and incongruities. We wait for the mind to untwist, unlock itself to exhale. We cannot force our brain to do this. Hiking will be the key to this lock. Somehow, in relaxation, in that exhaling, the letting go, we arrive at a state that Heraclitus described as listening to the essence of things. We open ourselves up to the world. The mountain allows us to be there. Try to listen this weekend to allow your inner world and its consciousness to talk to you. 
when that connection opens, when the static drifts away and you are hearing in HD, take note. That is what you want to journal. Sometimes this is just a few words, a single word, or an image, or a full fire hydrant flow full of thoughts. All of it is coming from within, wanting to communicate with you. Open your mind and heart and ears to what your inner world of consciousness is trying to communicate. Or, in other words, to helping find the answers to what you already know. Journaling is thinking aloud. It makes us conscious of our internal dialogue, more self-aware of who we currently are, and they then makes us more aware of our highest values and ideals, who we would like to become. I would like to share a passage I read in a book that I just completed. It doesn't necessarily tie into our journaling exercise or discussion, but it may be a prompt it may be something you think about when you're hiking on that mountain or when I come up and hike with you. And here it is. Respond to the events of the day in the day they occur. Don't take yesterday's baggage into today or you will find yourself back in yesterday. Stay away from tomorrow except to presume it to be what you need in benefit for your growth. Every day becomes an opportunity to know who and what you are and who others are as well. And let this be enough. Do not dwell on the past or predicate your safety upon a certain outline of a future that may or may not come to be. The teaching of the day is the teaching the soul requires. Tomorrow will present itself in its own perfect way. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that talk. And let's move on to some other topics. So I had a great conversation with Sonny, our intro talk, the first time I got to talk to him and sort of go through the plan and what we're thinking and why we're doing this. Enjoy this conversation with Sonny. We'll get to know him pretty well on this podcast over the next 16 to 18 weeks until he gets ready as we all together with him get ready for the Mumbai Marathon in January and it gives us a great way to sort of do the training plan of a marathon and combine that with somebody who's going through it live and asking questions and can really help me close the circle on what we may need with a good training plan and things that I might not bring up when I'm going through weeks one through four and five to eight and so forth. But we dive into all that on our conversation here with Sonny. Hi, Sonny. How are you? I'm good, Chris. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Oh, well, good evening <laughs> for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's yes, a pleasure um, to meet you. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a really big pleasure for me to be talking to you, Chris. Great. I've only been uh, seeing you on YouTube till now, and uh, I'm just listening to your podcast. And this is a real pleasure for me. Thank you. Well, here we are. We are about to start a journey together. Are you ready for this? Um, yes, I think I am. <laughs> be careful, be careful what you say yes to. <laughs> uh, well, I've already uh, committed it 
uh, committed to it now, so I don't think I'm going to back out. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. Um, so as we discussed, and I talked about on the podcast too, is um, what we will do is just gradually get going here. Um, right. and work into the concepts of what we'll want to build marathon training to. But we'll keep this shorter, and we'll just start getting rolling, and I will want to check in with you with, let's say, about a 15-minute conversation every two weeks, and then we'll have a longer conversation, okay. maybe 45 minutes um, every um, four weeks, so every other week will be longer. Every other conversation will be longer because it won't be a check-in. We'll talk about the next phase of training. Okay. And so that will, uh, that will allow all the listeners to be able to also take notes and join in. So, yeah. but for today, let's, um, let's get some logistics out of the way. And that is, so let's discuss, you're getting ready for the Mumbai marathon, right? That's right. Yeah. All right. And when is the mar- marathon? Uh, it's on the 19th of Jan, 19th of um, in Bombay. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so you've done a uh, 10K and a half marathon. That's right. And you have not been running for many, many years. You used to run the 800 a little bit in school, yes. you said, right? Yeah. And so... Uh, yeah. So, so this was back in school and... Um, I used to sprint, um, and like I said, I wasn't a very uh, fast sprinter, uh, but my childhood best friend, uh, he was a sprinter actually, and um, he taught me some basic drills and techniques to run, and I used to just try and mimic that and just copy that, and I got a little better, and I got selected for the 800, uh, but <laughs> but like I said, I um, I couldn't finish the, the race, and and basically, I stopped running after that. Um, I started doing a lot of other physical activities, but uh, running uh, at least uh, not longer than um, maybe 100, 200 meters at a time. I would do sp- uh, sprint interval training once in a way, but nothing apart from that. Well, you won't need it in your marathon training. Yeah. So, <laughs> so. All right. So we have a, a marathon January 19th. We are starting with a very basic fitness, but it sounds to me like you're starting to connect to some real fitness with regards to having done a 10K. What was your 10K time a few weeks ago? Um, It was around 54 minutes. Okay. And then you just did a half marathon, 21K, this past weekend. Um, and this is all on your own training. So we're starting clean. <laughs> we're starting from scratch. Yeah. And what was your half marathon yeah. time? Uh, it was an hour, 58 minutes and 29 seconds. Okay, so let's just say 158. So that's what we're starting yeah. with. That's our engine yeah. currently. And so I'm looking, we have about 18 weeks until Mumbai. Um, I think that is about correct. So what we're going to do is we're going to build um, a plan that everybody can sort of follow along with. And I will need you to ask a lot of questions or um, if you have any curiosity on why we're doing what we're doing, that you sort of make sure you ask those questions because you're asking these questions that many also might have. So I want you to be very comfortable with uh, sharing your thoughts and what you're observing in your training. So we'll do that in training peaks and you'll 
fill that out pretty diligently and I'll monitor the log and what you write and how you're training and we'll discuss that in our two week our our two week call. And then okay. in the four week call we'll discuss the training, what we want to get in, how we're gonna go about it. But what we're gonna do is sixteen weeks to the marathon. So we'll spend the next two weeks in this first two-week check-in, we'll just be sort of getting going on the plan, getting familiar with what that means. Usually, I would want to have a 20-week um, build-up to an iron uh, to an Ironman to a marathon, but um, yeah. you're not at an Ironman yet. Uh, no, not yet. <laughs> um, but it's good because you just did a half marathon, so you you've already got some fitness and some stamina with running, and we can use these two weeks to sort of do that, and then we'll go into okay. the four um, uh, four week windows. So we're gonna go, um, schedule will be one to four, which will start in two weeks, then we'll do five to eight, then we'll do nine to 12, and then we'll finally do 13 to 16 into Mumbai. Okay. So um, what have you been currently doing? How have you been currently structuring your training? Um. So I seriously started training um, at the start of June, mm-hmm. um, and and when I say seriously, uh, before June, uh, from Jan until June, I ran only once a week, um, and I the maximum distance that I covered was three miles okay. in that one run. Uh, from June onwards, I've started um, in June. I started running twice a week, uh, a similar distance of around three to four miles. Um, and you, it was do, usually. Do you use yeah. kilometers or miles? I use miles. Okay, uh, just checking. Yeah, uh, but in India the norm is to use kilometers. Yeah. Uh, but all the apps on my phone, on my iPhone, and the iWatch have miles. So, and also I guess because it's the international standard, so I've just been counting everything in miles. Um, yeah. Um, in July, I okay. started training thrice a week, and um, after listening to your podcast with uh, with Rich Roll, uh-huh. um, was when I first discovered Zone Two, and um, ah, you I didn't read the and, book. Uh, no, I, I didn't <laughs> read the book. <laughs> uh, I should. Um, so. After that, the next day was the first time that I tried a zone 2 workout. And the way I calculated my zone 2 was uh, my maximum heart rate. Uh, uh, So it was my uh, my age minus 210, which gave me my maximum heart rate. And then I sort of uh, did like a 65 to 75% of that. And it gave me uh, a rough figure of 125 beats per minute to 140 beats per minute. Mm -hmm. Um, And I sort of worked on that the next day. And I... I was able to sustain my run for 4.5 miles for the first time um, continuously. And I was really surprised with myself. And even though the run did feel kind of um, difficult um, on my legs, uh, that means my legs was hurting a little bit more than my usual pace because I had to slow down uh, for my heart rate to be in that zone. Uh, So I started doing zone two. And I also started adding tempo runs. Um, So I added some interval runs, like uh, I would run for half a mile and then rest maybe for a minute and then run another half a mile and then increased it to one mile. 
and um, then increased it to just a lactate threshold type of a run where I run three to four miles um, at a similar heart rate or a similar pace. Um, so I just mixed it up um, between zone two and the slightly faster runs. And then I ran my first 10K. And um, so it gave me... Um, and and before running my first 10k, which is 6.2 miles, the maximum I'd run is five miles at a continuous stretch. Um, uh, but I just took my chances and I went in, and I was kind of surprised that I finished it without um, too much pain. Okay. Uh, uh, but the half marathon um, <laughs> was was <laughs> was a different game altogether. Yeah, and I really really struggled in the last four miles, and. Um, yeah, so after my 10K, um, I again still train only thrice a week. And the mileage uh, um, per week was maybe around 15 to 16 miles per week. Nothing more than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, because the, the feedback that I was getting uh, during my workout was that my body might not be able to take more. Mm-hmm. Uh, my legs would get tired and I wouldn't recover enough. Uh, my sleep also wasn't great during this period, um, uh, but I knew that I had to run the half marathon because uh, in order for me to qualify for the Mumbai marathon, I need to have finished a half marathon before the end of August, So, which I've done uh, now, and now I can apply for the Mumbai marathon. Great. Uh, yeah, so I, I know that. Um, I gave you a very long answer to a very uh, a small question. <laughs> but, Not a word. Uh, yeah. Not a word. Yeah. Um, all right. So and then, so now we have an idea of what you've been doing, where you're coming sure. from, where you currently are with your fitness, because we see that with the 10K and the 21K. Then also last week, we did a five by one mile test. Yeah. Right. And I gave you your zones. Um, yes. How do those compare to what you were using before? Um, similar, but um, mine was slightly off. Uh, my zone two was one twenty-five to one forty, and the ones that you gave me uh, is one thirty to one forty. Okay. And similarly for zone three and zone four, uh, there's a difference of uh, five to ten uh, beats per minute. Yeah, so that's quite typical um, that we tighten up the ranges so that you're you don't go too easy. We want this training stimulus. So, um, all right, that's great too. So here we are. We're all set. We have our information we need. Oh, by the way, on the five by mile mile test, did I give you your retest number? Yeah. Okay. So Uh, your retest number is what we'll use over the next. Each four-week cycle, we will have one workout mm-hmm. where we will take that retest mm-hmm. heart rate number, which is very tight, usually five beats, right? Right. And um, we will do mile repeats at that number to show okay. how we're progressing at a okay. set heart rate, very tight heart rate, over you know the next 16 to 18 weeks. So okay. that's another input. That's why I use retest for a lot of athletes. So. Okay. All right, so there's our current state of affairs. That's our current fitness, a snapshot of who Sonny is at the end of August 2019. Mm -hmm. And we want to get to a new Sonny 
um, <laughs> by January 19th, 2020. Um, all right, so there's that's where we are. Now, um, the next question I would ask with if you were an athlete, and since you are an athlete, is what is your schedule during the week? So what, what is your, how do you train? What do you have available in your time? Um, right now, I have the luxury of time. Um, I'm an actor. Yeah. Um, and right now I have uh, my rehearsals for a play which I'm going to be performing only on the weekends. Um, and even if it happens during the week, uh, that takes about maybe three or four hours of my time during the day. Um, so I have a lot of time in my hand, uh, to train or to uh, sleep, to recover. Recover, Yes. Yes. That's the focus. That's the difference between elite athletes and all of us who went pro in something other is that the recovery time and the regeneration to the next effective, most effective workout is very different. So good. All right, so therefore we don't, are not limited by anything there. And then you, you, you built up to three times running a week. Good. Yes. All right, so what we'll do for the next two weeks before we start the full 16-week plan and we get mm-hmm. on our next um, um, call will be just to keep the running frequency going. You have not run since Sunday. I haven't. No. Okay, since you're recovering from the half marathon. So what yeah. we will do is we will run frequently. That means um, every day, but briefly. So it's okay. Thursday. Uh, no, it's Wednesday night there. So yeah. on tomorrow, I would love a 45-minute easy run, zone two. Um, okay. It might be a little achy still from the weekend, but hopefully that's been flushed out. Um, You've been drinking plenty of water, I hope, this week. Yes. And um, so we'll do a 45-minute run. I will send you a Training Peaks invite so that we can also monitor this on Training Peaks. Then on Friday, we're going to do another 45-minute run. And I go by minutes now, not by distance, because we don't care about distance. With all my athletes, what I work with is that if it says mileage or kilometers, we focus on them miles or kilometers but if it doesn't it's always just the minutes okay um friday we're going to include six times 30 seconds fast now that's fast because it doesn't have a zone in it i want that on feel i just want you to turn over the legs a lot quicker you can spread the spread those 30 seconds out however you like they do not need to be in exact order Um, okay just good enough so that you recover effectively to do the next 30 seconds well that might be two minutes that might be five minutes that might be a minute but fast means high leg turnover whatever the heart rate is for that is fine but fast means i'm going from my steady running from my steady easy running and i'm going to turn the legs over a lot quicker dramatically quicker it should feel uh, exaggerated and then okay. we go back to easy running. And okay. the benefit there is that we can do 30 seconds fast and recover pretty quickly from it. Maybe not within the workout, but by the next day, you will not have felt the effort level of 30 seconds fast. Okay. Then Saturday, we're going to run again. Again, we're keeping it easy. 45 minutes is nothing too demanding. Um, yeah. 
and on Saturday we're going to run an hour and 15 minutes. Okay. And the first 45 minutes will be easy, zone two. Okay. Controlled, reconnecting. Now you're starting to start to feel it because you just ran two days in a row. And you used to only run three days for the whole week. So now mm -hmm. we're three days in. So the first 45 minutes is to get settled. And then mm -hmm. I would like you to do 10 minutes at zone three. So now we're okay. at 55 minutes. Five minutes at zone two. So now we're at an hour. And then we're going to um, do one more five minute zone three. And I will put this in training peaks for you, but again, this is for people listening too. And yeah. then we're going to cool down the rest of the way. All right. That'll be 10 minutes. This will be tiring. And so what we'll do there is mm -hmm. we'll take Sunday off. Okay. And then I will put some training in for the week next week of which we will keep a similar format. Nothing too demanding, but frequent. We might be 30 mm. to 45 minute runs, <clears throat> but every day. Okay. And then one longer one for next weekend or for next week. But okay. I will also introduce core training next week. And this is, okay. as many of my athletes know, quite painful. Because um, <laughs> it's supposed to fire things that we will need for running. Mm. And... Um, so those core workouts will include some um, EOs, which are rounded sit-ups, where we're also twisting the body. And um, I'll have a video attached to that in Training Peaks. Um, within that is also some three-legged bridges, some sit-ups, and so forth. And most of the descriptions are in Training Peaks. But what we want to do is on those days of core, we want to make sure that we're um, including a run after. And before we jump mm -hmm. up on the volume too quickly, because if we add the core workouts, it'll quickly jump up, we'll keep those runs to 20 minutes. Okay. So we'll do things like crunches and three-limb front bridge and EOs. And you might wonder, well, what's the core for? Again, when the body breaks down, when the body fatigues in running, it's because our midsection, our core, our hips, and so forth, no longer carry the load very well of our running posture, and our form breaks down. So the stronger we can keep the connection between our upper body, our arms swinging, and the shoulders swinging back and forth with our running stride to help propel us forward, with our lower body, which is where the work happens, the midsection really supports that. And by having a strong core, it'll allow us to go further at our desired pace before the form breaks down. And so we're yeah. gradually going to start including that in our okay. training. The yeah, yeah, sorry. Uh, I, I think th that's exactly what happened during my half marathon. I could literally feel my core just just give up. Um, yeah. And I, I, I could just feel like I've lost the connection, uh, like posturally. Yeah. Um, and my, my, my shoulders were dropping and my head was tilting forward. And yeah. Yeah, yeah that's quite common. So that over the next 10 days, 
before we start our 16-week format, we're already familiar with the exercises of core. And you will be very sore and it will be difficult to get through it. You might not even complete it, but at least you know what the exercises are and we can build up our tolerance, our fitness of them. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what the format will look like for now. For the, until we start our 16-week window, the next two weeks will be about frequency, introducing concepts, and getting the core routine um, familiarized. Now, all of these will not be in great positioning to start. Um, the core might be too fatiguing. The volume might be too much and so mm -hmm. forth. But that's fine. We want to sort of get into this place where we are teaching the body, wait a moment, wow, we're really training now. We're no longer just exercising. And it doesn't mean that what you were doing wasn't a training because you're bringing your body back up to speed, up to familiarity with running. And so you did it in a very healthy way, once a week, then twice a week, and then finally three times a week. That's a very healthy, gradual way to bring that up. So all good. And now okay. you're introducing all kinds of new concepts. But we're going to eat well. We're going to hydrate well. Drink plenty of water during the day. And we're going to come into each workout with a clarity and a freshness and a focus and knowing what we want to do in order to have the best possible outcome and absorption of the training. Okay. Um, I, I have a couple of questions. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm losing weight. Um, I think I, it's, it's nothing too dramatic, um, but I've increased my calorie intake, um, mainly carbs and uh, fats and a little bit of protein also I've added. Uh, but I still feel like I'm losing weight. I don't know if I'm losing muscle. Um, also, um, yeah, so that's one thing. Um, the, my second concern is when, especially when I do zone two uh, style training, mm -hmm. my legs tend to hurt a lot more. I don't know if uh, something wrong with my form or if my legs are just not strong enough yet. Um, but this is something that I've noticed till now. Mm -hmm. Okay. Those are the two questions. Um, um, I mean, these are my two observations. Okay. Uh, I don't know if I should be doing something about it. Is this normal? Um, should I do something about it? Um, yeah. Okay. So, um, first regarding the losing weight, you will lose weight because based off of what your body's been doing, the previous few years to what you have built up to consistently now, your body is basically recognizing that this is what you are doing now and is trying to catch up and adapt and find, optimize itself in this space of what it needs and what it doesn't need. And so losing weight for many people, not all, <clears throat> for many people is a quick part of the process. It might be shedding some muscle weight for sure because of muscle that it doesn't need in order to run effectively. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, your body composition might be changing to lean muscle mass and so forth. This will continue to happen. I would focus on increasing the calories that I'm eating so that I'm not losing 
too much weight. As a matter of fact, I would love for you to eat so that you maintain weight. Because as we increase this volume, as you see, and as we start the 16 weeks, um, the demands will go up even more. And the body might yeah. lose even more weight. And we don't want to lose too much weight. That's a, a not a good sign of our training. What that means then yeah. is that the body is risking injury. It's health, not healthy, losing too much weight too quickly. It's also a signal that the body can't keep up with what we're doing. And we don't want to weaken your immune system and um, as well as your body's resilience to avoid injury. So, so that's that. Okay. Regarding running heavy, it is very common in zone two training for in the beginning for athletes to be running heavy. It feels awkward, achy. It's because we're landing heavier and slower. Mm-hmm. When we're running yeah. at tempo and higher turnover, our feet are on the ground less. We don't collapse, fall on our leg as much because it's already going back and part of the next stride. But when we're running yeah. slower, we're running heavier. We're landing slower and more weight on the joints. This is common. And this is part of our buildup of um, joints cartilage and muscle tolerances and bone strength and so forth. Um, it is part of zone two training and a very common observation. If it becomes too painful or too fatiguing or you notice that you start your IT bands, the muscles on the side of your legs going down to the knee, those should be, yep. try to keep those as um, rested, as uh, supple, as um, soft as possible. The harder they get, the more they pull on the knee. And we don't okay. want that. So um, maybe we also look for running on dirt or on grass or something that's not hard concrete or asphalt. So, okay. so if you said to me, Chris, I found a fantastic eight-kilometer stretch on dirt road. And it's pretty flat and it's great for running. That would be amazing. Because then less stress on the IT bands and the joints and the knees because of the softer surface and a little bit more strength because the push-off and the glide of your step requires a little bit more tension and force in order to push off on softer terrain or dirt. Yeah, um, I'm going to do my best, uh, but Bombay is known as the concrete jungle of India, so <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a little difficult. Yeah, um, I am going to do my best, though. Yeah. Uh, Chris, is it also normal for my cadence to be a lot uh, lower in zone two? Yes, exactly, because you're, um, you're running slower and you're forcing yourself, you're keeping yourself from turning it over faster. So leg turnover is one of the turnover as in cadence, is one of the main ways the heart rate goes up because you're doing something quicker. Because we're turning the legs over quicker, we are actually therefore running faster. It's not as though we are magically pushing off stronger and all that because of our running form that we're faster. It's because of our turnover. So therefore, um, I say to many athletes, if we can maintain 80 to 90 cadence while we're running for long stretches, Mm -hmm. we will be going quite fast as well as as fast as we currently can with our fitness. Mm -hmm. Um, As we fatigue, we slow down, and therefore the pace slows down. 
So cadence and pace and heart rate are very closely re related. In order to keep your heart rate down, most slow down their cadence. It's not like they can maintain beautiful form, um, mm -hmm. if they even have beautiful form, and mm -hmm. slow in some other way to zone two. It's always a slower cadence in most cases. So, so it's totally okay. normal. And as our volume and our efficiency and different here now is the economy of motion, as all three of those increase and improve, all these things will change for the better. Okay. Um, also, one of my concerns, uh, it's not a concern, but it's, it's um, something that I've been meaning to ask you. Um, should I weight train um, in the gym? Uh, should I do my squats and my deadlifts and my bench presses and my shoulder presses? Are you currently um, doing this? Uh, that was my routine. So I would run thrice a week and uh -huh. I would do yoga uh, maybe once a week or twice a week yeah. and then weight train on the on the other two days. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So should I continue with that? Do you think it might um, so in, in our... some way be overtraining? Yeah, I would be, a for, we're in our first 16-week build-up. And while yeah. I'm a big proponent and fan of strength training, um, I would love to have that in the 16-week routine, and I'll talk about that in there. But in this case, given that everything will be brand new for you, and there will be a lot of stimulus and um, change in your body, I would not want to add that extra stress. So that's number one. Number two, we will go from core to a sort of um, um, a, a routine of hamstring work and so forth. But that doesn't need to be done in the gym. It's all body weight related. So okay. um, we can do that at home. And so somewhat strength, but somewhat not as much stress on the body. Most of my athletes do a marathon with me or two, and then we gradually increase the um, intensity, the load, the type of training we're doing with strength, as well as um, different type of speed work, and track work, and hill repeats and so forth. So that as the athlete becomes more progressed in their marathon training, we change and update the concepts to continuously add more stimulus. Um, but first, we want to get you to your first marathon healthy using the engine we've built in the most successful possible way and um, to see what you're capable of. And from there, we can, you can make decisions with regards to how you want to go and grow this and stick with it or if it was too much or, or you know. <laughs> so there's a lot of observation and newness happening and I don't want to introduce mm. too much more now okay. I will say though yoga is always great okay. add as much yoga as you would like okay I love yoga if I, I just I speak of yoga all the time and I never do mm -hmm. it myself <laughs> <laughs> but um, the few times I've done yoga and what I know of yoga is it's only helpful and only positive I just wish I had more time to do it. Okay. I mean, uh, staying in India, you can't yeah. but escape yoga. <laughs> so exactly. I, yeah. I think. Yes. Yeah. 
So you represent that aspect continuously, please, um, okay. of awesome. doing that. Yeah. And then in two weeks, <clears throat> we'll start our formalized next first four-week cycle. And we'll go through okay. that on the phone call and describe it and why we're doing what we're doing. And what that will be is repeatable weeks. So we'll have a structure in place for weeks one, two, three, and four. And I'll work through the progression of that. And that way you know on Mondays I do this, and Tuesdays I do this, and Saturdays I do this, and Sundays I do this. And, um, and then we'll go through, well, on week two, we're going to do a little bit more here. And on week three, we're going to do a little bit more there. But the format, the structure, the skeleton of the week will remain the same. Okay. Oh. Awesome. So there you have it. <laughs> that 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 sounds great. Um, I have another very uh, a very beginner question. Okay. Um, should I train in the morning or in the evening, or is it okay either ways? You will get to a point where you will be training twice a day. Okay. Um, and we will separate it, but for now it does not matter. Um, mm -hmm. And the nice thing is you will use the next two three weeks, the beginning phases too of the training to maybe observe what works best for your body. Some people train really well in the morning and their body is rested and um, their circadian rhythm with sleep and how their body is best optimized is best in the morning. Some, okay. it's best in the afternoon. Research seems to show that most, the majority, are better in the afternoon. I have not found that. For me, I know it's in the morning. Okay. As in, I have not found that to work on me. I'm not right. saying that most of my athletes work out in the morning. So, okay. Yeah. No, these are all great questions, and this is exactly what I'm hoping to get for, from you. That just whatever you might have doesn't mean it's a beginner question or not. They're just questions, and I want yeah. to be available to answer them so that we can deliver the best possible cumulative training plan that others can wrap their head around as well and um, understand the concepts. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, thank you uh, for this, uh, uh, this great uh, opportunity. And um, I'm, I'm going to do my best um, to follow everything that you uh, have asked me to. And I'm looking forward to receiving uh, the, the training peaks, uh, uh, workouts that you'll be sharing with me yeah and then we'll uh we'll probably need to modify a few things as we're mm -hmm. going through this because of doing it on training peaks versus me just discussing it on the podcast but we'll sure. figure that out as we go awesome okay all right all right my friend well it was a pleasure to meet you and get a chance to talk to you for the first time and um i will Likewise. reach out to you to schedule our first um call um, with for the 16 weeks plan in about okay. two weeks awesome cool all um, right sonny. Uh, looking forward to it okay. thank you chris thank you of for course. your time have a great one bye-bye all right you too bye i've had a fair amount of athletes over the years well that's probably enough of a statement i've had a fair amount of athletes over the last couple of years or over the years but that are um 
stuck sort of in this gray zone after a race, after their A event, after a big event. And a lot of them are pretty diligent about following up pretty quickly with uh, uh, feedback and data from the race and what they observed and input. And then they're sort of surprised why they don't hear from me. And um, then they usually reach out after three, four days. Hey, did you get my race report? I'd love to get your input. And there's usually a little bit more silence, not necessarily silence, but I don't go into it on, I might give them some workouts depending on what their next event is and what this event was that they just got ready for. But usually for the A race, for the, the, the key focus for the season, it ends up taking on this dynamic. And then about a week in, I start checking in with the athlete. And they're usually a little confused, like, well, what took you so long? <laughs> but emotionally, we need a week to decompress. We need a week to sort of take a look at different angles of who we were on race day. And this gets pretty difficult for a lot of athletes because we're on a high and we're totally stimulated from the event. And either it went really well or didn't go as well as planned or we feel we left something on the course or we have more potential and we want immediate feedback. Um, <laughs> I say that was such an underline because it's sort of the world we live in. It's everything's immediate feedback. And that's the important thing here is creating that gap between what we felt and the emotional high and taking an objective look at how we did. And that takes a few days. A, we need to emotionally decompress and sort of get back to normal life and realize, wow, the world continues to revolve and <laughs> revolve around the sun um, in, its same, in and around itself um, in the same way, despite my A event, despite my Ironman, despite my 100-miler, despite my 50-miler, despite my Attilo swim run, despite whatever it is I did, despite crossing the desert, despite um, climbing Everest, whatever it is, right? Um, the world moves on. The sun sets and the sun rises. And as we distance ourselves from the event and from that big emotional toll and adventure we went on, the experience, and again, the stimulus of it, um, then we start understanding and getting a better perspective of what that day was, what it meant, how it fits into the rest of our lives. We're back with our family or we're back with in our routine or with our loved ones or back at work. And again, it's a completely different feel a week later. And so a lot of times I have my athletes then read through their race report from the day after. And already they're modifying and adjusting. Now, the raw data of what you ate and drank, you should always capture that after an event, even a B race, a C race, a long training day, because you want to be able to capture that and know if it went well, to sort of get those tidbits. If it didn't go well, to sort of have an analysis and a growth from it. But... Taking that opportunity to look back at what we wrote and look back on how we felt and take a, a different view of it, sort of a from above, bird's eye view, 10,000 feet above view of ourselves for that day has a very powerful impact. And back to the written meditation and journaling I talked about, when we look back and read that, our journal entries post that week 
and then reflecting and thinking often results in a completely different entry and a completely different perspective. It's shocking. And again, so that's why I find it important for everybody, whether I coach them or not, to take a moment and look back and give them a week. Definitely capture the emotions of the day as immediate as you can, like the next morning while you're having coffee and you're sort of limping around or not limping around or whatever. You're exhausted, can't lift your arms from that 10K swim or that you know, big ocean swim, that Catalina swim, whatever it is. We're getting ready for all kinds of stuff this year. Um, although Catalina swim is something definitely starting to come on my radar. But anyway, um, capture it and then re take another look at it and then write about it again or provide feedback for me if you're my athlete again. And notice the changes. Notice the different perspective. Notice the growth. Notice also the emotional aspect of it. And so then after we decompress, then we take an analysis and look at it. Most of the time you're getting ready with me for an endurance or an ultra endurance event. So a week off is necessary anyway. For half Ironmans, it's a minimum of week, of week unstructured workouts. For Ironmans, it's usually two, three weeks of unstructured workouts. Um, you know, for me, myself personally, I actually, you know, make sure I take a week, really light um, swimming, if anything, just because it feels good, but no desired outcome, no plan or intention, just from a social aspect and getting in the pool and spending some time in the sun since I live in California and I get to swim in the mid morning outside. So, but other than that, nothing. And then the next week is all choice. There's days where I skip it. It's the time to skip it. It's this time to engage in work or family or take a trip or take a weekend with your family and focus on other things. I've talked about this before in the podcast. And then we re-engage with training and start charting our path towards our future athletic self, right? As I talked about earlier. But that's the important thing. Separate the two. Have a, have a deliberate uh, practice, in this case, of capturing everything post-race, capturing all my emotions, my feelings, my experience, my insights, everything I learned right there. So at least we have it. And then from there, about a week later, read it, work through it, save the original copy, and then write, save the new copy. And look how much you have changed and how you look at it differently. It's a fascinating experience. I used to have to go through it with swimming. And that's why you guys, as you know, most of this comes from sports psychology work and work that we did as swimmers. Um, I was fortunate enough with the national team to have to go through all these exercises. They had trained personnel for this and trained classes, and we went through all these exercises. So now a lot of my coaching revolves around how this, what worked so successfully for me and many other athletes at that time, as well as what I've also seen over the last 30 years of doing this. I mean, 1996 was the last time I swam competitively, so it's been, you know, 20 years, 24 years. So um, therefore, I'd like to say 23 years, excuse me, um, that all those years of coaching since then, grad assistant coach in college, all that stuff, and then finally triathlon coaching and just general coaching and 
coaching people all the time, <laughs> baseball coaching, little league coaching. Um, these are the observations I take from it. I mean, even with little leaguers, just to bring that up for you talk to them a week later after, let's say they lost in the, the semifinals or the championship and the emotions and the tears and the sadness and the suddenness of the event or the season being over. And then a week later, they're totally like, yeah, baseball was fun. Cool. <laughs> you know, okay. It's exaggerated with them. They compartmentalize differently. They have other things they right away move on to either, either into summer or like fall sports or whatever. I'm now going to lacrosse camp. That was fun. Baseball later coach. Um, but it's still a different perspective. It's still like, yeah, well, that was really a bummer, but you know, life goes on. They've noticed that life goes on, even at their young age of 9, 10, and 11, right? So that's the process, and that's why some of my athletes definitely get, um, get sort of a, a, a feeling of a cold shoulder from me for that week after events. Those experienced with me, they know it's coming. They don't, not, they don't, even, they don't even check in for like 8, 9, 10 days. So, but I think that's helpful for everybody. All right, let's dive into an email. First of all, congrats for the second place at Alaska Man. Huge effort in an amazing course. Um, yes, an amazing course. So it was a fun day. And um, yeah, I would, again, like we talked about, recommend it um, to anybody looking for an adventure in a triathlon. Six weeks ago, I did my first lactate test, as you can see in the attachment, which gave me a threshold of 241 watts. Um, three weeks later, I had my A race, which was a half distance triathlon. Even though I used a power meter, I raced it by feel as there were some tactics involved. My question is how good was the test? Because my normalized power for the 90 K was 242 Watts, which would be impossible to hold for two hours and 20 based on the test I did prior. There's another question here, but I'll dive into this one first. So, um, first thing I'll address is tactics involved. I'd be curious to hear, hear how there are tactics in a time trial race, um, in an age group time trial race. Um, because of the drafting rules, even with the course, um, I'm, I'm, I'm again, I'd love to hear more Andre about how, what you mean by tactics, because that's actually an interesting topic, a to jump into and B that confuses me a bit because technically there should be no tactics in a amateur um, age group half a distance triathlon but maybe I'm misunderstanding and I'm not thinking um, properly or maybe I need to learn more about it but let's dive into the test first before I answer the second part of the question um, overall this is a um, pretty standard test it looks pretty good because the data based off the heart rate line is pretty solid. It looks like it's gradually increasing um, by about nine to 10 heart rate every stage, which means it's a pretty linear growth in heart rate, right? As the wattage resistance workload goes up, heart rate goes up and it goes up. Um, the wattage goes up by a set amount that doesn't fluctuate. And so very similarly, the heart rate responds with almost a set non-fluctuating incre increase as well. So 
another reason why it's hard to determine the proper zones on heart rate alone. Um, now, there's ways around it. And as you guys saw with the, the online test that I have with the running and the cycling, there's ways around it. And I've seen enough of these to also gauge people to put them somewhat into a ballpark. Um, and again, you might say, well, how is that different than any 180 minus your so-and-so age and this and 220 times so-and-so? Um, no, it is a little bit different because you're giving me your individual data based off the training um, test that you did. And then we extrapolate from that the current snapshot of the fitness of who you are. But this is a lactate threshold test. So I love to see good heart rate data. So that's the first step in validating the data. It looks like we see, um, I'm trying to see if there's uh, the data itself. Once again, guys, if you and girls, if you guys get a test, get the raw data. There's a lot of athletes I work with and they're constantly coming back to me with this pretty printout and handout of their testing. But get the raw data. Take a picture of it and save it. You paid for the test get the raw data. It's very important because it also allows you to sort of get a better sense of how they ex extrapolated their charts and zones. But in general, we want raw data versus just a chart. So in this case, it looks like each increase was about 30 watts. I'm not sure. I can't really tell here. And I know I'm just sort of going over this uh, briefly with you guys. So therefore, I don't want to spend too much time in trying to analyze this test. And I just opened it for the first time. But the first few stages look like we start at 130. Then we go to 170. Then we go to 210. So it looks like 40 watts approximately. Then uh, to 240 or 230. Yeah, 240. Yep, and then it keeps going up. The data itself, also decent. There's no weird drop-offs in the lactate. Good validator. It starts pretty low at 1.7, 1.69 to be exact. Then it goes to 1.74. So those we round to 1.7. Nice flat line to stop. We see a very light increase to 2.17 at the third stage, which when you go and look at it, this is almost a half a millimole over baseline. Baseline became 1.7 because we had two values at that pretty flat and early on. So therefore, aerobic threshold is somewhere around that number, 2.2, 2.3, 2.4. It's approaching 220 watts. So I would probably say aerobic threshold, not anaerobic threshold, aerobic threshold is around 210, which would be a corresponding heart rate of about 140. Below that, um, a percentage and a, a fair ways below that, therefore, is zone two. Um, then we're now in talking about zone three here, which happens to be a pretty wide range. So we just said that first incremental increase in lactate accumulation happened around at, at that wattage of about 200 to 210. So let's say 210 is aerobic threshold and the top end probably of zone two. Um, now the next value is 3.2. So up a full millimole and up a 
big jump in heart rate from 137 to 153. So not the 10 or the 9, 147, but a bigger jump. So it looks like a wide stage here. It's a big tax. All of a sudden, the body's like, holy crap, I'm working, right? Now the lactate accumulating, which is good, because you want the lactate accumulating, is no longer being absorbed, shuttled away, and processed off by the working muscles and body. So therefore, we are onset of blood lactate accumulation, obla. So this is clearly happening pretty fast. So it looks to me like aerobic threshold is somewhere around 250 watts, maybe a little bit more, depending the fact that this person got to a maximum lactate of 15, <laughs> which is very high. It means he's a, probably a pretty um, proficient cyclist to be able to suffer like that, to get a lactate that high. And he was very fresh, which is a good sign. And he got to a heart rate of 183. I'd be curious what his age is. What was his age? It didn't say here. Um, anyway, uh, means that he's, he's, we could probably move that a little bit higher. So 250, let's say it's 250, 255 for LT, lactate threshold, anaerobic threshold, or OBLA, O-B-L-A, all known as the same value, basically. Now, what many think is that this, therefore, is almost impossible to hold for two hours. Pro cyclists and good cyclists who work hard all the time, who really have improved their tolerances lactate buffering, their ability to hold lactate despite it accumulating in the working muscles for a long time, can hold this number for quite some time. That's number one. Number two, the key word here is normalized power. Um, now, it would be nice to get a good sense of what average power was because, and he did give me his training peaks activity, which I will take a look at in a moment, but I doubt that's for the race. But what I'd like to know is how far apart normalized power for the 90K and the average power was. Why? Well, again, if it's a very climbing course and hilly course, it's easy to get your NP, normalized power, up high. And what your average power is, a lot lower, and therefore it comes more into sync. But again, to answer that question, is it impossible? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Did it affect your run? I don't know. I don't have your data, your results. I mean, this is just a, a, a brief snash, a snapshot. So I don't really know. I'm going to take a look at the Training Peaks activity. All right, so he sent me the Training Peaks activity for the race. This is awesome. So first of all, this we can go through, sort of through this together. I hide a bunch of things. I hide the right power. I don't need that um, because it's it's really just a... It's a tool to show what your legs are doing with regards to equal power. Not really something I'm diving into right now. So I'm going to hide right power. Don't really care that much about the temperature because I've seen that. Don't really need that. I see right now it's about 65. So temperature is not a factor in this race, in this event, in this performance. All right, so we'll hide that. Next, um, I will look at... Uh, the course looks like it's a three loop course because there's hills that repeat themselves three times. And if I've also followed the bubble, 
it's a um, three-loop course. With that being said, um, average power was 232. Um, normalized power was 242. 10 is a big gap. Um, you might not think it's a big gap, but it's a big gap. That's um, on, let's say, 230 or 240. Let's say that's 10%. So, uh, no, 10%, that's 5%. So I would like to say that that's probably um, riding those hills a little bit stronger. But again, nothing that dramatic. This is quite similar to what I see in sort of, not beginner triathletes, but those that are unfamiliar with how to efficiently race to have the best possible run. But again, until I get the run data and see what actually happened in that race, it's hard to say. It might have been a great bike ride. might have been a really slow run. might have been a great bike ride. might have been a great run. I don't know. It's sort of just a snapshot here. But so taking that, I'll also then hide the feet at the elevation. I don't need that. Next thing I look at is miles per hour. Never need that. Always hide that. Don't need it. Why don't I not need miles per hour? It's an irrelevant number. It means nothing. On this course, that's the pace he held. On another course, he would hold two, three more miles an hour slower or faster. On a hilly course, he might go slower. On a flat course, he might go faster. Average speed makes zero difference to me in training and in racing. It means nothing. Um, so then, now we're getting down to the nitty gritty. So we still have RPM beats per minute, and wattage remaining. Next, I'll look at the average cadence. I don't look at the cadence throughout, but I can see on the climbing, so the cadence and how he pushed. Okay, nothing dramatic. This guy is clearly a good cyclist. So, Andre, nice work there. Um, so let's take a look. Average cadence, 92. All right. Clearly a good cyclist. Did you guys all hear that? 92 average cadence for a 90K bike ride. That is somebody, if I were coaching him, I'd get him to lower his cadence, actually, because I would want, not want him to leave power on the course, power in his pedal stroke available, so that he doesn't um, overspin his gears. That's sort of a more advanced cycling term, but quite often, good cyclists overspin their gears. Now, I don't know how tall he is, how long his legs are. Shorter cyclists usually spin at a higher cadence. Longer leg cyclists use more the levers and power of lower cadence. They'll be in the low 80s, 80, 81, 82. But to have an average for 90, um, 90K uh, of 92 is quite impressive. And um, again, not easy to do. That means for a lot of it, in order to average it, he's over 100. So I would dramatically have him bring back his cadence to put more power remember watts equals force times speed cadence is the speed force is the torque on the pedals so that's what wattage is and so how you can, might be able to bring up your average watts by not really giving up too much muscular power and cardio power because your heart is unlimited in its power um i should correct that not unlimited but it can carry you a lot longer and further than your muscular power um, I would probably have you try to get down to the mid to upper 80s. If you had an average of 86 on that cadence for a 90K, remember average, that means a lot of it's in the mid 90s. Some of it is in the low 80s. You average upper 80s or 
you know, 86, 87, I guarantee you're probably going to find another 10, 12 watts on this course. And 10, 12 watts on 90K is a lot of minutes. Anyway, this bike split, by the way, was 223. Um, elevation gain was 1,400 feet. So nothing dramatic, but still. Um, and then, um, so now we still, I'm going to get rid of the RPM. Hide that. All right, now I'm looking at a chart that's starting to get interesting. By the way, I slid the scale of the um, rounding over to the basically the middle. So I'm not looking at a too choppy of data. I know I'm sorry, you guys, if I'm going a little bit sort of geeky here into the files and the wattages and the cycling, but bear with me. I mean, this is a short discussion about, and we're five minutes into some good data. And I bet you many of you will appreciate this. Sorry for the noise. There's a helicopter circling above our house here, not above, but around. Muir Woods is probably about two miles as the crow flies from our front door. So there's always some sort of activity back there, um, whether hikers or something, or somebody hurt their leg or and climbing or climbing a redwood. <laughs> anyway, so now I'm down to wattages and heart rate beats per minute. Now, a lot of my athletes, experienced athletes know, I look for a very key metric. Do the two lines, do the two data lines stay in tandem, not perfectly, not mirroring each other, but somewhat in tandem throughout. And in this case, they do. Another sign that this guy's fit and he's a good cyclist. I'd even actually would be willing to say that his second half of his bike, if I look at this properly, had a higher average wattage than the first half, yet his heart rate didn't go up. Um, let's take a look here. Heart rate average for the second half was 242. Aha, now we're getting to why he might have been was talking tactical. That's what probably what is went. First half, 222. So that's your tactical discussion right there. So nothing, it's all in the numbers. Thank you, Andre. You don't have to answer this, this that earlier question. Um, tactical being he wanted a strong second half and he brought his wattage up by 20 beats. It's not easy to do on a three loop course. That means he had some clear intentions on this. And the interesting thing is his heart rate went down in the second half. Um, on average, just looking at the chart, average heart rate, second half, second 90 K 153, a little high, but again, matches with the test data, by the way, first half, 157. You guys hear that? Heart rate for the first half was 157, second half 153. Heart rate for the first uh, watts for the first half was 222, second half was 242. So a lot of data in here, a lot of questions that he asked. It's all starting to come together with a picture. So this guy's clearly fit. Again, usually I don't have to do this analysis with an athlete because I know the athlete. I know how fit they are. I know what they're doing. Um, Next thing I want to look at on this map where he raced. This becomes the name. This is all becoming quite intriguing. Um, it looks like we're talking. He raced in Spain, Portugal. Aha! All righty, it's coming together. Ah, I like this. Just north of Porto, beautiful part of the world. Beautiful um, cycling and racing there on that coast. 
and I would even like to say amazing surfing, if I remember correctly, from my younger years of actually, um, you know, having surfed. I think there's some good waves either there or a little bit south of there. Anyway, um, so back to his questions. So, again, experienced cyclist, clearly fit, clearly no heart rate drift, clearly intentional, clearly tactical, I should correct myself. And um, therefore, being able to hold higher watts is quite realistic for somebody who is a cyclist and they have built up their tolerance and their thresholds at a um, higher level with regards to cycling. Cyclists are incredibly able to, to put forth efforts and tolerances when it comes to lactate buffering and just pure suffering and pain that take the usual charting of what an athlete should be able to do to another level. Cyclists, it's just different. That and rowers too. It's also pretty, takes the physiology, exercise physiology to another you got to sort of put in an asterisk next to it. Swimmer, swimmers with like lung capacity and breathing and um, VO2 max stuff, they also get an asterisk. So anyway, so yes, it's possible. Now, again, I'd love to figure out or hear if the run went as planned or maybe not as planned. But here's the big question for anybody racing a 70.3 or an Ironman or triathlon. Mm, Olympic distance is a little bit different. We all know what we're capable of running in training. We all know what we're capable of running well in training. We start seeing paces, understanding what we're capable of for 10, 12, 13 miles or 18, 19, 21 kilometers. But then in the race, we seem to say, well, because we biked pretty hard prior, therefore we should be able to, um, we, we have a reason to run slower. Not really the case. You should be very close to what you hold in training off the bike because of your fitness, number one. Number two, many of you, and I hope many of you are nodding your head right now, know, have noticed that you actually feel better running off the bike, warmed up. It clicks in quicker. You feel lighter. You feel more connected. You're engaged. The chain is firing. I've always known that when I get off the bike, I feel much better running than just going out and running a half marathon. That feels awful. It takes forever to find steady state and get settled. Whereas when you do it off the bike, easy bike, even a strong bike, not sure about a threshold bike like this. But that being said, um, we want those same sensations and we want that similar performance. Now, of course, straight up, flat out, best half marathon versus best half marathon off a bike. Of course, there's a differential, but what we see in training, not best half marathon, but in training straight up and what we see in racing should be quite similar. And if we bike too hard, we will not see those numbers, right? Again, maybe I stand corrected. Maybe Andre here has an incredible, great, good fitness level, good pain threshold level, and then good running level to come off the bike and run this well. Um, again, would love to hear more. Second part of this question, other question I, that I have is that when I left the water, I see probably, it probably answers it right here in this email. I probably should read these emails before I finish. <laughs> I left the water that I had, no I had no power in my legs for 15 to 20 minutes. Quite common. 
I was feeling miserable and wanted to quit. Only after riding around 10K, I started feeling my body well again. Maybe it's also that it wasn't as much tactical that he rose, raised his wattage. He was just feeling crappy. But never more than 5-10 minutes. The thing is that I'm in the best shape ever. Got 8th overall and ran... Oh, jeez. I stand corrected again. A 118 half. I don't understand where this lack of energy comes from. All right. This is a, a great question. So coming out of the water, I had no power in my legs for 15 to 20 minutes. Might be an oxygen question. Might be an anxiety question. I'm not sure how strong you are. I think we talked a little bit, Andre, about a year ago about helping you and what I would recommend for your training. So um, because I remember that this 118 half reminds me of that. So clearly you are extremely fit, very good energy systems, very good abilities to run a 118 half off of a 220 uh, bike, 223 bike. So great. Um, the lack of energy is a, is a question I am going to quickly take a moment and think about. I'm back. And with that, it's hard to say. I mean, there's a lot of inputs missing. I would love to know what your breakfast was. I would love to know what your swim split was in order to see how much that taxed you. I would love to know with regards to how you went about the swim course. And it looks like it was an ocean course, but then again, it could have been in this channel, in this river here. I'm not sure. Um, but that being said, I would the first thing I would point to is being low on energy um, and not having enough energy on the bike. And again, your ability to suffer. You got pretty far into this event without even... Um, much of a drop off, heart rate looks right, power went up. So um, maybe it's a breakfast question, maybe it's an electrolyte question, maybe it's an oxygen question during the swim and being fatigued from it. Maybe it's a um, sh sudden movement of blood through the body where you quickly go from swimming, upper body, all the blood rushing to the legs and sort of being confused. Maybe you need to practice that more. Um, it could be a variety of things, and I'm not going to you know, pretend to know, but those are the things I would look at. I would look at breakfast. I would look at how you swim and how much that took out of you. Um, I would look at um, practicing that transition. In order to practice that transition, I oftentimes used to have my higher-end athletes that were doing shorter Olympic distance races as well as 70.3s, but on the elite level or even pro level, 500, yards in the, 500 meters in the pool, trainer on the pool deck, get out, strong effort, zone three effort on the bike for 20 minutes, um, off the bike, run 10 minutes, boom, back to the pool, um, run being good, strong effort, um, a threshold effort, um, five minutes break on the pool deck, quick uh, drink, quick, maybe some calories or some electrolytes, back in, 500 meter swim, and do three rounds of this. Again, stimulating different energy systems because this is a question for you of maybe it costing you or taxing you because of that. I'm not sure, but that would be one way to really change all your energy systems throughout. Very quickly, very powerful, very fatiguing, very explosive, but a great workout. Um, something to think about. And then I would love to hear about your breakfast. 
and then um, other insights, other things you felt on the bike. What were you drinking on the bike? What were you eating on the bike? So if it just happened the first 10K, it looks like then you were pretty strong throughout. Um, what were you doing? What what did you do after the 10K? What did you do that during that first 10K with fuel and hydration? So I think a lot of this ties into those two um, because that steady heart rate and the rising wattage and your ability to do this event for another uh, 223, 323, you know, two three hours and 41 minutes after that swim at a very high level. So sorry, I went a little deep there on the question, but you know what? They're all part of the questions that we receive and all part of this discussion. And I hope it helps you get an insight into how I go about this and think about it. And maybe you can think about your own training this way or other coaches. I got an email from another coach the other day. Um, actually today, and um, he's gonna. I'm gonna have him, his email on the podcast in a bit because he not today because I'm still catching up, but he was one of those who, um, listeners who provided some input for future races. Love it. So we'll do that segment next time where we sort of highlight this and how amazing that could be if we could discuss sort of a wealth of shared information here that you know how to train better for your events. So, all right, that's that email. All right, one final email as we sort of close this out and I don't want to get this too long. It's already um, with Sonny's interview included quite a long episode, but I have a bunch of good emails and I feel guilty not answering a bunch of them. Hi, Chris, I'm a passionate runner and full-time cardiologist from South Brazil. How great is this? <laughs> I have listeners in Brazil. Um, I discovered your podcast and I love it and have been binge listening the past episode. I love your training approach and endurance as a lifestyle. I hope I provided some input with that today. I would also like to allow, uh, ask your opinion on a current headache, on my current headache. I had a stress reaction on the metatarsals after trying to change my running form to a four-foot strike. I had plantar fasciitis last year, and since then I've been reading too much on the internet on running form. You're a doctor. You should know not to look on the internet. I've been running for 10 years and never had a serious injury before. Many half marathons between 143 and 145, my first marathon last year, 352, without any trouble. Um, also as a swimmer, also a swimmer since childhood with some water marathons up to four, eight kilometers as a master swimmer. But I fell in love with running now after three months not running to heal my foot. I'm afraid to get back to training and get injured again. I'm completely pain-free since for two to three weeks after the injury, and I've been swimming every day all this time, around 25 kilometers per week. Wow, that's a lot. So your aerobic engine is right there. Oxygen delivery is there as a cardiologist. Um, how should I start and how can I progress? When can I expect to be back where I was in training before this injury, running five to six times a week, 75 to 90 kilometers per week? Can you help me? Letitia. All right. Some key information in here. First of all, let's go into the four foot strike and running form. Um, 
yes, that is helpful, but everybody has to adjust their running form to how it works best for them. And again, not knowing how you used to, if you heel strike, remember, this is not a foot landing question. It's a question of where your hips and knees are relative to your landing spot. If your heel and foot lands in front of the knee, you're overstriding. It's called overstriding because your foot goes beyond the lever of the knee, which is hanging down, which your lower leg is and foot is hanging down from the knee. And at some point, it just falls and should be landing midfoot. Somewhat heel strike. That's why that pad and our heel is so strong. It's designed to catch our foot hitting the ground as we run. That's how we that's how we became who we are as humans today, humanoids from our evolutionary past. So if the heel lands in front of the knee, yes, it's overstriding and there's a lot of torque and pain into the knee and into the hip and can be painful on the Achilles as well as the plantar and so forth. Now, why you got your PF issues, I don't know. And many cases we all don't know because it sounds to me like you've been running for many years and it was fine. So, um, but let's dive into this. So one, forefoot is also never any good because just think if you're only landing on your forefoot, your forefoot has to carry the load 40 times your body weight and deal with all that landing power with its calf fully engaged. That calf is doing a lot of work when you land forefoot only. So what you want to envision, not do perfectly like pictures on the internet, but envision foot landing below knee, heel landing below knee, midfoot landing below knee, and gently, gentlier <laughs> landing on the heel and midfoot at the same time, and then rolling through your stride and coming off your big toe. Hence, why well, we have a big toe. It developed longer than our pinky toe because we land on the outside of our heel and cross over the front of our foot and come off our big toe. That's sort of, you know, how it works. Now, we all have different running forms. And to say to someone, you need to run like this, or this is your, per this is the perfect running form. No, there is your perfect running form, your efficiency, your economy, your stride, and a good running coach and that's not me because I don't do necessarily video input and so all that. Um, but I know enough about the mechanics, the biomechanics, that a good running coach will guide you to make it work best for you and your current stride and your gait and how you're landing and your overall efficiency and gradually, ever so gradually, making some slight adjustments. Nothing dramatic ever. And there is no shortcut around a PF once it's inflamed and dealing with it. Now, do you want to try different things? Absolutely. But that's the first part to know. But now you're here. You're hopefully healed. You sent me this email on August 9th. Now it's the 30th. Um, so that's another three weeks. Hopefully you've been running on trail or dirt or grass to keep the load lighter, the impact of the legs lighter on the knee, on the foot, on the ankle, on the heel, on the entire chain, on the toes, on the metatarsals when you're landing. Of course, you got a stress factor in your metatarsals because you're landing in the front of your foot where all those metatarsals are so thin and so weak and they don't have the support of the full foot in its landing strike. 
It's a lot. So what I usually recommend when coming back from a stress fracture like this is infrequent running, which means every third day or every fourth day to start, then gradually moving to every third day, then gradually moving to every second day. You know, again, depends on you, depends on your sensations, depends on how it's feeling, depends on any achiness. I had a guy who had a stress fracture, yes, off of my coaching, partially. He ran a little bit too hard on a downhill marathon, thinking he would qualify for Boston like that. It would make it easier, but he absolutely destroyed his feet by running downhill on pavement for 26 miles and trying to negative split it and longer story. But He's back to running very fast now, very strong. He came back pretty quickly. He took the time off. He was very diligent about it. And now he's back quite strong, running quite well um, and going to Berlin. And he's going to have a good race either way. And we have a long history of success. He just was a little bit too aggressive on this downhill marathon. Anyway, that's how I would start. So 30, 40, 30 to 40 minutes, 40 minutes being the max twice a week then maybe three times a week. And I would very much focus on soft surface, grass, track, rubber track, dirt, dirt roads, forest roads, things like that, because we want to limit the impact and bring up the durability of the legs gradually. The, the impact on the joints, the impact on the cartilage, the impact on the meniscus and the knee joints and the hips and the low back and recruit the glute and recruit your hamstrings, fire everything properly. We have a unique opportunity to start everything from scratch. And so you right away want to make sure you're improving A, that running form, B, the heel sweep, get it closer to your booty, butt kicks so that, that heel, those hamstrings are engaged, that glute is engaged, and you're running with a firing through the chain properly versus using too much of the big muscles quad and make the IT band nice and fatigued and TFL issues and all that. No, glute and hamstring recruitment. But that being said, do it on grass. It might be boring, but you're running. There are plenty of soccer fields in Brazil. Run around them. Yes, it's boring, but you're running and you're a swimmer. We're used to boring. We should stare at a black line at the bottom of the pool for 25 meters, let alone running around a soccer field that's 100 meters long. So, you know, around, uh, I'm not doing the proper math now, but it's probably around, well, it's 50 meters on each side, right? 100 meters long, I think, I, if I remember correctly, or something like that, not 50 meters, maybe wide, maybe. Um, you know, that already right there is 300 meters around. So most soccer fields have a track around them that's 400 meters. So if you're running around the corners, you're about 350 meters. That's a lot more than 25 meters swimming. So you're used to that boredom. Switch directions. Um, use different running form, different shoes, run barefoot. Keep things strong and getting stronger from that. And then gradually, once you're running every other day, I would include one pavement run a week. Then I would include after three or four weeks, two pavement runs a week. Now you're probably running every day with the grass and the dirt and the soft surface and doing two pavement runs a week. You do that for four-ish weeks. Now we're safe. You've brought up your running volume. You've brought up your form and efficiency and stride and economy and so forth. You've improved your gait. You're activating. You're firing through the chain. You're safe with regards to injury, you're healthy, you're fit from your swimming, you're fit from your running, now you can start pushing the tolerances again, four or five runs a week on pavement. That's how I would go about that.
I hope that helps. Make sure I'm not missing any other questions in here. The last thing I would say, 75 to 90 kilometers per week is a lot on average, right? I hope you're coming off of that for recovery weeks. I hope you differentiate your training weeks and not just always doing 75 to 90K. That's a fair amount of running. 90K is 56 miles of running. If you're doing that, 50 to 60 miles of running every week, just play. that's a lot of running. So make sure you differentiate in your training. Make sure you have stimulus. Make sure you're doing different terrain and different surfaces. Make sure you're switching out your shoes, running in the same shoes for 56 miles a week or 50 miles a week all the time with five to six times a week in the same shoes, many weeks in a row, not good. You should have at least three pairs of shoes that you rotate through and you have a favorite shoe for speed work or grass or track or pavement or dirt and you just use those when applied. So. All right, you guys, let's close this puppy out. All right, I almost forgot to close out the episode without adding in the the Jersey winner and the wetsuit winner. Well, the Jersey went to Carol Ann Stovall. I hope I'm getting that name right. And I will send that out to you. And she's in Savannah, Georgia. So um, I hope you enjoyed it. It's one from our training camp. And it's a Castelli jersey that you will enjoy. It's a great one. And I use it all the time. And then the wetsuit went to Natalie Spies. Um, She's in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And how did I go about choosing this? Quite honestly, um, as I said earlier, Carol Ann was the first to email me. And she wanted both, but she was the one who asked first for the jersey. <laughs> and then same with Natalie. She sent me an email right away with the wetsuit request. It fits her and it works out great. So um, she needed a tall and hopefully this will, will all work out great for both of you. Thank you guys so much for um, sending in a bunch of emails and asks for it. I'll have plenty of more things that I'm giving away and I'll have some other swag that I've received that I'll gladly give away and then um, we'll keep this rolling. So thank you so much for listening this week and yeah, I hope you enjoyed. I'm not going to make it a big closing. I'm just going to get out of here and uh, not make this too much longer. Thank you and I will talk to you soon.